Now, next week, it's the one we all dread. It's daylight savings, and we lose an hour of sleep. So, make sure you change your clocks and turn them ahead. Otherwise, you'll be here at an odd hour next week. So, daylight savings next week, Saturday night into Sunday morning. If you use your alarms on your cell phones, it'll, it'll all do it for you. But if you have an actual alarm clock, make sure, make sure you, you check it. With that, Pastor Rob is going to come up and continue our Genesis series. I do have an alarm clock. <laughs> okay. Well, good morning again. <clears throat> we are uh, we're walking through Genesis. We're into Genesis today again. Just a reminder, if you're new here, we've been going through Genesis slowly for some time, and we'll spend a little time in Genesis, and then we'll move on and and talk about something else, and then circle back to Genesis. So we're in Genesis today. Um, we've been working through this uh, Genesis chapter 25 for, for a while now. And we're going to, uh, I think we finish up 25 today. We do. We're going to finish up Genesis chapter 25 today. If you want, there are study guides in that back, uh, right out those doors on the round table out in the foyer. There are study guides. You can grab one now if you'd like to follow along, or you can pick one up um, on your way out, if that is helpful for you. Um, so uh, we, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up here the story of Gen- in Genesis chapter 25. It's only a couple of verses. Uh, we've been looking at uh, two boys, uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, we're, we're continuing uh, the, the story. Much of Genesis is the story of Abraham and his family. And it's not just a story about Abraham. It's a story about God and humanity. Because God makes a promise to Abraham. God makes several promises to Abraham that carry down through the ages to you and I today. And that's not an exaggeration. God God has been working throughout human history in all kinds of ways. We see in Genesis one of those ways, where God takes this man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do some things with your life, and there are going to be things that happen as a result of how you and I interact, Abraham, that's going to affect all of humanity for all of time. That is not an exaggeration. We believe that that's actually what God said, and we see that that is what God is doing. So when we read through this story, it's not just history. It's, it's our history. It's our story that we're reading. And so we've been following Abraham. Uh, Abraham now is, is gone. Uh, he has a son named Isaac. We looked about Isaac and the love story with he and his wife, Rebecca. Now they're farther along down the road, and they have two boys. And so the family is continuing, and we're looking at the two sons of Isaac and Rebecca, their names are Jacob and Esau, and we've spent some time with these guys, uh, and we're going to continue to spend time with them. In fact, the story of Jacob is going to dominate Genesis here for the next several chapters. But uh, here in Genesis 25, I'm going to read um, just a few verses at the end of the chapter. I'm going to start with verse 27. We actually had this verse before, but I'm just going to start there as a transition into the story that we're going to deal with today. So Genesis 25, starting with verse 27, says this, the boys, that's Jacob and Esau, they grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. All right, an interesting little uh, interaction between these two boys that God writes down for us to take a look at. So um, maybe just to define something that for us doesn't make a lot of sense, perhaps this idea of a birthright. Uh, what this was here, that, that there was a, J, or, I mean, sorry, Esau was the older of the two brothers. They were twins, but Esau was born first. And so he was the oldest son, which means that he had coming to him this thing called a birthright. And in general terms, what the birthright was, what they're talking about there, is Esau, as the oldest first son, would get a double portion of the inheritance, whatever Rebekah and Isaac had, land or cattle or, or, or whatever wealth Isaac and Rebekah had, when it passed to their children, the oldest son would get a double portion. He would get twice as much as everybody else. That was his birthright. He was born first, and so he had the right to a double portion of the inheritance. A second part of that is almost always with the birthright came kind of the judicial patriarchal authority of the family, if that makes sense, where, where Isaac, as the oldest guy in the family, was kind of the patriarch of the family. Well, when Isaac was gone, somebody had to step into that role of kind of being the head of the extended family, and that was the right and the responsibility of the firstborn son. That was part of the birthright. So Esau is the firstborn son, and with that comes some responsibility and some reward. He gets a double portion of the inheritance. He's going to enter into manhood more wealthy, perhaps, than his brothers and sisters. And he's also, as the oldest son, going to have some authority. He's going to have the, the, uh, the position of being the patriarch of the family, one that others look to, and when, and when decisions have to be made, he, he, he is looked to. So that's, that's the situation that Esau finds himself in as the firstborn son. Jacob, of course, as the secondborn son, doesn't get those things. Esau is going to inherit more, and Esau is going to, in essence, be Jacob's kind of boss for the rest of his life. And if you have an older brother... Perhaps you can understand how Jacob maybe wouldn't have liked that, to know that for the rest of his life Esau is going to be his boss. Um, but anyhow, that's the, that's the situation that these two find themselves in. And so when we see this idea of Esau selling his birthright, that's what he's selling. He, he's, these two boys made a transaction with each other where Jacob had something that Esau wanted right now, Esau had something that Jacob wanted later on down the road, and so they traded. Esau said, I'll let you get my double inheritance. I'll let you be the family patriarch whenever that happens down the road. But right now, I want you to give me some of the food that you have. And Jacob said, okay. Does that make sense? That's what happened there. 
Esau gave up his position and gave up his inheritance because he needed food and Jacob had some, so they made a trade. That's, that's what happened here. So it's an interesting story, and, and we can think perhaps, well, what is the point of that? Why are we reading this story? Because I, I'm guessing most of us don't live in that world where, you know, the oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance and becomes the patriarch. I mean, a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the logistics of this story don't happen with us. So you can ask the question, perhaps, well, why are we reading this? Well, I want to remind us what, we, what we've said at several points during this story of Genesis. Genesis was not written to, to help us just understand these people. Genesis was written to help us to understand God and to understand ourselves. Genesis begins with, this, with a story of creation, how God the creator made you and I and made the world that we live in. And Genesis is written, one of the big purposes, one of the big benefits of the book of Genesis is we begin to see who God is and we understand who God is and we can see who we are. We can understand how we interact with God, how we interact with this world that God created. He made us, he understands us, he knows us, he put us in this world that he understands and knows, and he interacts with us here. Genesis helps us to to see all of that more clearly. We can understand God, and we can understand ourselves, and we can understand the interaction between God and ourselves. That's what happens here. So when we read this story, it's not just a picture of some archaic practice that happened thousands of years ago on the other side of the world. It's an understanding of human nature and how we interact with God. That's how we're going to look at this here today, okay? So let's look at the story a little bit, and then we will uh, we'll try to unpack perhaps what it means to you and I today. And as I read this story, one thing that I'm left with, I guess, and maybe this is the, the most obvious um, takeaway from this story, is that both boys acted poorly. I think, I think both of these boys, this doesn't put either one of them in a very favorable light, I don't think. They both acted poorly, but they did so in different ways. So we'll start with Esau. Esau sold his birthright. It says that, that, that he despised his birthright. So what do we learn, perhaps, from Esau? And I don't think that these, are two, uh, that, that these um, observations are, are much of a stretch. I think that Esau, perhaps, we see he was lazy and selfish, and he shirked his responsibilities. See, part of being the firstborn was you had a responsibility. And it's one thing to be the guy that's in charge. It's another thing to have the responsibility to care for everybody when things go poorly. And the patriarch of the family was the one who, say there was a famine, say there was a war, if there's a crisis, the patriarch needs to step into that and protect and guard and look out for. Esau despised that. It says that it's interesting to me that what, what it keeps saying about Esau is that he loved to be out in the fields. He loved to be out in the open country. And I get that. I understand that. I share that love. I share that hunger. There's something about, I was driving into town today thinking, I don't like this town. It's too big. It's just too big. I want to live in the 
wild. I do. I hunger for that. I long for that. When I'm out in the woods, it's good for my soul. So, so I get that. Esau, oftentimes when God describes Esau, I, I have sympathy for him. I think, yeah, buddy, me too. I would probably be running with you, <laughs> Esau. If I'd have been there at the time, I'd have been like you. But, okay, fine. You like that, but you can't always do what's fun and enjoyable. And it seems as though Esau is just, I don't want to, don't give me any responsibility, because then I can't go hunting. It looks to me as if here's a man who is perhaps lazy and selfish, shirks his responsibility. We don't know that for sure. This next one, I think, is more clear. Esau very much seemed to value short-term pleasure over long-term good. He, his dad was a rich man. Isaac was a rich man. Esau paid an astronomically high price because he was hungry right now. He bought a meal of lentil stew and some bread for what was probably going to turn into perhaps millions of dollars in today's economy. He was very much focused on, I want something right now. And what happens down the line? Ah, whatever. There's responsibility and there's benefit down the line. I don't care. I'm hungry right now. He lived perhaps by his stomach. You know, it's interesting. Dogs live by their stomach and their, and their other parts. <laughs> But they're motivated, dogs are motivated by what they want and what they need right now. And if they smell something, it overrides all of their, whatever other cognitive resources a dog has available to him. If he smells another dog or if he smells food, that, that dominates, that dictates everything he's going to say or do. I think, I think that there are people in the world who live like that. What's in front of me right now, what I'm experiencing right now, shuts out everything else, and I just act by what's in front of me. I think perhaps Esau was that kind of a man, where he just, he lived for short-term pleasure and didn't bother to think about the long-term. Certainly, this last one is true. He disregarded and disrespected his father. You see, he was his father's favorite. Isaac had dreams and hopes for Esau. Isaac wanted Esau to be the patriarch. Isaac had dreams for his son, and Esau just despised them. I don't care. I don't care what dad wants. I don't care what anybody wants. I'm doing what I want to do. He disregarded, he disrespected his father. So Esau doesn't come across looking good here. I think Jacob comes across looking even worse. What about Jacob? He acted poorly. How did he act poorly? Well, I mean, the most obvious thing is that he demanded payment for ordinary kindness. He's cooking lentil stew. His brother is hungry. All right, I'll give you some. I'll meet your need, brother Esau, but you're going to pay me for it. He demanded payment for what should have been ordinary kindness. He surrendered any kind of, or, or he seems to have 
not, either not had or he shoved down any kind of natural, I mean, not even not brotherly love, but even just what you would do for a stranger. Jacob wouldn't go there. I will not be kind to you. What's in it for me? If you don't pay me, I will not. I don't care about your needs. I don't care that it would be easy for me to give you some stew. I don't care. What I care about is what's in it for me. He demanded payment for ordinary kindness, and it shows a greedy, selfishly opportunistic man. And as we see the story of Jacob unfold as time goes on, this is going to play itself out again and again and again. He was greedy. He longed for what he could get in the world, and he didn't care who he ran over the top of to get it. And he was desperately, selfishly opportunistic. And again and again, when Jacob had a chance to get something from someone else, he took it. And it seemed as if his only motivation was, how much am I going to get out of this situation? Didn't care what it cost someone else. Didn't care what it meant for his relationships. Didn't care about any of that. He seems to have valued, everything was driven by what's in it for me. And his one motivation in life seems to be, I'm greedy and I'm selfish. So much so that ordinary human kindness has disappeared from his world. He's become almost a caricature. Who would be that greedy? Apparently Jacob would be. And like his brother Esau, he disregarded and disrespected his father. I don't care what dad thinks. I don't care what dad's desire is. I don't care what my brother wants. I don't care about any of that. All I care about is me. And I'm going to get what I can get out of this situation right now. And everybody else, forget it. Everybody else, I don't care. That's what I get from Jacob. An ugly disdain for the people around him. I don't care about any of you. My brother, my dad, my father-in-law, eventually my wife, my children. I don't care about any of you. I care about what I can get right now for me. These boys are not presenting themselves well here. And the story is left there. It's interesting. That's kind of the end of the story. God says, I'm going to show you a picture of two men, and neither one of them are men that you would want as a (laughs) son-in-law or probably a friend, or a co-worker. You don't, here's two men, and neither one of them is acting all that well. So why does God show us this story? What do we learn from it? What, what can you and I learn from this story as we see the picture of these two men acting poorly? Well, I think... I think there is a, uh, an extremely powerful lesson for you and I 
when we read this story and when we think about it. Because I, I believe that the story of Jacob and Esau, how they interacted with each other, and subsequently what God did after that, that's a reminder of the reality that you and I live in. And, and, and I want you to think about that statement for a minute because I believe that it's true. When we see Jacob and Esau and how they were, and when we see how God responded to these two men, that's a reminder of the reality that you and I live in today. In other words, you could replace the name Jacob and Esau with your name and my name, perhaps. Your name and your husband's or wife's name. You and I, I believe, are the central characters in this drama that's unfolding. And how God responds to these guys is how God responds to us. Remember what I said earlier? Genesis is a tool for you and I to understand ourselves and to understand God and to understand how we interact with God. And I think that's the great value here. So how do we see ourselves in this situation? Well, I start with this. And I'm going I'm to say this in the first person because that's true of me, but you could put your name in here. But when I think of what's the lesson I learned from this, I start with this. I am worse than I want to believe. I am worse than I want to believe that I am. Earlier in Genesis, Justin shared this verse last week when we were talking about uh, Isaac and, or I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau. But in Genesis chapter 6, as, as the story of humanity is unfolding and sin has entered the world, Adam and Eve lived in a state of perfection. God created them perfect. He put them in a perfect world. But he gave them a choice, I believe, to, to accept that and to respond to God or to disregard and disrespect God, just like Jacob and Esau did, and say to God, no, I'm not going to obey your rules. I can do better for myself. And they disobeyed. They sinned. That's what sin is. It's a turning your back on God. And sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and it's come down to you and I, and it has clung to us. And you and I are sinners because of Adam and Eve, because of our forefather and foremother. We have been born into sin. And because of that, I am worse than I want to believe. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, after sin has entered the world says this, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord God saw how great man's wickedness had become, and the only inclination of his heart was, on, was evil all of the time. I... I I don't want that to be true of me. I don't want that statement to be true of me. I believe that it is true of me. 
I'm worse than I want to believe that I am. And I suspect you could say that about yourself. Because when we stop and think, if you stop and think, honestly, this is very hard to do because it's painful. And because the implications are so great, we don't want to do it. And we recoil from doing this. But in the moments of your clearest understanding of yourself, well, this is true of me, I suspect it's true of you. You see the wickedness that is inside of you. I watched my dad die. He, uh, he was, got cancer, and he uh, collapsed one day and never got up again, and three weeks later he was dead. And I spent that three weeks with him by his bedside there most of the time, most of that three weeks. Um, and as I watched this old man who had brought me into the world and cared for me, um, as I watched him suffer and fade, I found myself at times, thinking, I wonder how much money I'm going to get when he dies. And that thought was in my mind, and it didn't go away, and I didn't like the thought, but the truth was it kept coming up. Soon he'll be dead, and I'll get his money. And I loved my dad. I loved him. He was a, a hard man in many ways. But I loved him. I did. And I still do. And I miss him. And yet this man that I loved, there was part of me that was looking forward to him dying. Hurry and die because I will get your money. And if that seems to you evil and wicked, I would agree. I sat next to a dying man and wished he would die. And that's evil. And that is wicked. And that was in me. And I would like to tell you that in the 12 years since that happened, I'm a different man now. I don't have those thoughts anymore. But the honest truth is that I've been in that situation since then, and I've had the same thoughts. I am worse than I want to believe that I am. And in my most lucid moments, I see I am a wicked and evil man. Just like God said. Just like God said. And so when I look at Jacob and Esau, 
I don't have any moral superiority. I don't look at them and say, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. Rather, I look at them and say, oh no, I am like them. But here's the second thing, I think, that is so powerful in my story. Remember, Genesis, we understand ourselves. And that's not pretty. Second thing we do is we can understand God. Here's what we see about God. I'm worse than I want to believe. Thank you. I'm worse than I want to believe. Here's the other truth. God is better than I could have ever hoped he would be. God is better than I could have hoped. Jacob and Esau, Jacob in particular, when you read his story, he seems to be a man who goes from bad to worse. And as his life unfolds, the things we're seeing now seem to solidify and strengthen in his life rather than change. He seems to be one of those men that's worse at the end of his life than when he was young. But we see something about God in this. That's this. God did not abandon Jacob or Esau. God kept his promises to these men, though they didn't deserve it. God was better to them than they had reason to hope. And in Genesis chapter 12, if you remember, God had made promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your offspring. Well, that's these guys. And though these two would have been ones that God might have said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to find somebody else. God kept his promises to these men. In Genesis chapter 12, this is the, the promise God gave to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that included his sons. And he kept his sons as part of that promise. God used Jacob. God remained close to Jacob. God, God kept his promises to Jacob. He did not abandon Jacob. And God was better to those two men than they could have hoped. And God is better to me than I could have hoped. Because here's the third thing I take away from this story. And it's really, it starts with I'm worse than I want to believe I am. But that statement is changed and modified by God is better than I could have hoped. And it turns into this. I, today, live in the promise that God gave to Abraham. God blesses me because he's good. And ultimately, the promise to Abraham was not about money or wealth Ultimately, the promise God gave to Abraham was not about a long life here on this earth. Ultimately, the promise that God gave to Abraham was the promise 
of a restored relationship with God himself. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a separation. Our sins separate us from our God. My sins separate me from God. I was created to be close to God. I have something inside of me. God made me like Him. He he made me to only function well when I'm close to Him. He made me to long for a relationship with Him more than I long for food, more than I long for water. If you are in a parched desert and you haven't had a drink of water for weeks, your need for God, for a close relationship with God is better and deeper and longer and stronger even for your need for water because it lasts for eternity at your core, at your soul. You and I were created to need and long for God desperately, fundamentally, and nothing satisfies except God and nothing satisfies like God and when we sinned it was all taken away from us and the thing that we longed for more than anything the thing that we need more than anything a closeness a relationship an understanding an interaction with our creator with our king with our father with our God it was taken away by our choice and we were lost and dying floating through eternity, separated from God, dying and dead. And the promise God gave to Abraham was, I will open a door for you to walk through and to come home to what you long for and need, what you were created for, what you have surrendered because of your own sin. I will make a way for you to come home. And I think of this verse in 1 Timothy where Paul says this, and this is true of me as well. This is true of me. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Here's a trustworthy saying. The promise to Abraham was through your line, Abraham, Jesus Christ will come into the world. God himself will take on a human body and will live amongst us. The creator will live with what he created. He will lower and humble himself and come to us and then he will take the life that he inhabits and he will willingly give it to pay the penalty that I am due. He pays my death penalty for me. Christ Jesus came into the world. The promise God gave to Abraham. Jesus Christ came into the world to save me. Because I need a savior. I am worse than I want to believe I am. If I got justice, I would spend eternity in hell. That's all I have earned. promise to Abraham comes to me. Christ Jesus came into the world and he sacrificed his life and I don't know how but I think perhaps God thought of me. I think perhaps Jesus thought of me when he was on the cross. Somehow in his infinite divinity he could look through the years and see me. See a wretched, wicked, evil man. 
Say, I will pay for his sins. Come home. Come home. So here's what I take away from this story. Here's what I take away from this story. I think it's good for us to see ourselves clearly. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to say or to believe that we are capable of wickedness or evil. But I think it's good for us to recognize it. Because you and I cannot outrun our shame. We'd like to. We'd like to forget our shame. We don't like shame. We think that shame is a bad thing that we need to avoid, if at all possible. The problem is, I have done shameful things. I am a shameful man who has done shameful things, and I cannot outrun it. It's like my own smell. I can't get away from it. It exudes from me. It follows me wherever I go, and no matter how hard I run, and no matter how hard I scrub, I bear my own shame. It is good for me to remember that. But if I stayed there, if I stayed there, that shame will eat me alive. Shame is like a cancer. Shame is like a a disease inside of you that slowly eats your soul and turns you into a wretched, ugly thing crawling on the ground, debased. And yet I can't outrun it. It's there. What do I do? Well, I can't outrun it, but here's what I can do. I can take my shame in my own two hands. I can walk to the cross. And I can hold it up to my God who's dying for me, and I can put it there, and his blood will cleanse it and will wash it away. And I can live as a different man because God is better than I ever hoped he would be. I walk around, I carry this verse with me. It's Isaiah 44. And it says, God wrote this to Israel, but it speaks to you and I today. This defines me today, it defines you today, I believe. Pay attention, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I, the Lord, made you, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. I, a wicked, evil man, know that this is true of me because I have a wonderful, good, loving God and Father. 
sweeps my sins away, sweeps my offenses away. If I try to take care of them myself or run from my sin, I cannot. I cannot. It follows me. If I take it to the cross, I am washed clean. My sins are swept away, and I am brought home. Men and women, we are brought home to have a relationship with God the way he intended it all along. That is, there's nothing I can say about that. How can I, how can I, what words can I say that would do justice to that? The glory and the wonder and the love. You will never understand God's love for you until you understand all the reasons why he shouldn't love you. And he does anyhow. This is, this is the promise to Abraham that you and I can live in. We can be the recipients of the promise God made to Abraham if we take our sin and our shame in our own hands and say, this is mine. And we walk it to the cross and we let Christ cleanse it, his blood. If we let him sweep our offenses away like the morning mist. And if we return to God because he has paid the price to set us free. Father, I just praise you for that. Father, there is nothing we can say in response to that other than thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you so loved me You sent your one and only Son. If I would just believe in Him, I would not perish, but I would have everlasting life.